I want to pose a question to you today. And the question I want to pose is this. Why did Jesus Christ come to die? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Why did Jesus come to die? You know, a frequent answer that I get is, Jesus came to die so my sins would be forgiven. And I need my sins forgiven so I don't go to hell because I don't want to go to hell. Not a false statement or picture. Just not the whole picture. You see, there are many reasons why Jesus Christ came to die. John Piper actually wrote a book, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. It's a great little book. It's like one little page per chapter. But I find for, for most people in our biblically illiterate Disneyland version of American Christianity that we live in today, we know like maybe one or two reasons why Jesus came to die. Why did he come to die? That's the question. That's, that's the question I want to frame for us today. And I want to go beyond forgiveness of sins. I want to go beyond just, uh, I'm going to spend eternity with Jesus and so our journey begins today in the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation. It's Revelation, not Revelations, as my seminary professor told me. There's no S on the end of it. In the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation, John is given a vision. He's given a vision of things that have not yet taken place or occurred. And he finds himself in the throne room of God. And he begins to give an account of those things verse by verse. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. So there he is in the throne room. He's having a vision. These things haven't happened yet. And there's somebody on the throne. And we know from the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation that the first member of the Trinity, he is on the throne. And in his right hand, he has a scroll. And it has writing on both the front and the back. Apparently, the author had a lot to say. And it's sealed with seven seals. In Roman law, the significance of that is that for something, evidence to, to bear any type of legality or legitimacy, it would need to be sealed with seven seals by seven witnesses before it could be established. <clears throat> and so, this is what he sees. And verse 2, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? That's what he's seeing. There's an angel. He's got a loud voice. And he's saying, who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? The, the word here that is used, the word for proclaiming this message, is the word in the New Testament that's used to describe the same word for preaching. It would, in Greco-Roman society, be used to describe 
someone who possessed an unusually good vocal instrument, something like that of a town crier. He might come in and say, Hear ye, hear ye! Why? Because he wants everyone to hear him because he has something really important to say. So when he says that the angel's proclaiming this message, that's, that's what he's doing. He's loud, he's proud. Everyone is hearing what he has to say. And so they're looking for someone. There's a, a search. A search begins of the entire universe from heaven to hell and all points in between to find someone to open the scroll to break its seals. And so the proclamation goes out throughout the entire universe and silence follows. No one steps forward. No one answers the call. There are certainly countless thousands of angels hearing this proclamation. Who's worthy to come take the scroll to to open it, to break its seals? Countless thousands of angels who are hearing this, they don't respond. Not to mention all the righteous dead of all the ages. This would have included Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Job, Moses, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Daniel, Peter, Paul, and certainly the rest of the apostles. And so this proclamation goes out. And no one responds. No one volunteers. No one raises their hand. No one speaks up. The search is not going very well at all. Verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I begin... I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. At this point, John is emotionally wrecked. He's weeping. I don't mean, guys, you're, at, you're you know, watching a movie with your buddies and you know, there's an emotional scene. It's like, dude, are you crying? It's like, no, man, I just got like some pretzel salt in my eye. Dude, we're eating popcorn. Where'd you get the pretzel salt? Like, you know, kind of, you know. I mean, he's bawling his eyes out, okay? Uh, he is, he's crying. So why, why is he crying? Because John really wants to know what's in the scroll. And until that scroll is open, it can't. He wants to know what's in the scroll. Now, understand this. This is not the same as maybe you get upset because the internet crashed and you can't find out who won the game, though I can see why that might be of grave concern. Not the same. Or the newspaper doesn't come that day. I don't know if anyone still gets the newspaper, but not the same. You see, until the scroll is open, 
God's purposes remain not merely unknown, but unaccomplished. I'll say it again for point of emphasis. Until this scroll is opened, God's purposes remain not merely unknown, but unaccomplished. So you have to understand what John... What John's like. This is a man who's been brought up on this messianic hope. Go back in the Old Testament... His promises that one day God would assume his kingly power and reign openly on earth. And that hasn't happened yet. <clears throat> Remember, when Jesus came the first time, they, they thought he was going to be something else. They thought he was going to be this conquering hero, and, and he wasn't. Rather, he was the suffering servant. He was the Lamb led to the slaughter, but John knows, here's the thing guys, John knows that one day he's going to come back and, and he yearns for that day. He looks forward to that day when the wicked will be punished, when, when the wrongs will be made right, when justice will prevail, especially amidst of the persecution that God's people had experienced. They have longed for that day to bring an end to their sufferings, but also to vindicate their faith. John's weeping here because of great disappointment. It seems that God's God's actions have been indefinitely postponed. I think it's worth noting this is the only time that tears are seen in Scripture in heaven. You can confer that with Revelation 7, 17, and 21, 4. Only time in Scripture that tears are seen in heaven John is he's weeping because he yearns to see the world free of evil, free of sin, free of death. And what has he seen up to this point? You know, he's writing this story around A.D. 95. Let's believe that he is the last surviving apostle. And think of what he's seen. He's discipled by Jesus. He's witnessed his, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. He knows he's coming back for sure. Week after week, month after month, year after year. You know, maybe he's coming back this year. No, not this year, John. Not this year. He, he yearns for that day. He yearns for that day. I uh, called, the, called Brandon up. I texted Brandon. I got in contact with Brandon. I said, hey, I want you to sing... On Sunday, I know this is not exactly traditional, but I want us to sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. He's like, okay. I said, here's why. Here's why we're going to sing it shortly. Because when we sing that song, we don't simply remember that Jesus came to earth as a man. We also prepare our hearts for his second coming. See, when we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, as we will, we're not simply role-playing what the ancient Israelites must have prayed for before the coming of Messiah, but so much more than that, we are praying that Emmanuel would return, that he would make 
right all that is wrong in this broken world. We yearn for that day when he would come again as John is in this moment. That's why John is upset. That's why he's bawling his eyes out. He wants to see the devil vanquished. He wants to see God's kingdom established on earth. And what does he see? His Messiah executed. Jerusalem looks like ground zero after the plains hit it. After General Titus laid siege to it and ravaged it in 70 AD. He's seen his friends die. The man writing this story is the only one of Jesus' disciples who died of old age. All the rest were killed, were put to death, according to church history. That's what he's seen. He's seen the Jewish people massacred and scattered. He has seen persecution. He has seen sin infecting the church. You read the first three chapters of this book. Sin is like a virus. It's infecting the church. And so a lot of things from his perspective seem to be going really badly. Maybe that's how some of you feel right now. It's been the worst week, worst month. And you feel like you can't catch a break. And then you begin to understand why John is crying. Then you begin to why he so, so yearns for the return of the king. He wants to see He wants to see sin and death and suffering crushed. And so the proclamation goes forth. And the search turns up no one. There's no one to take the scroll. There's no one to break its seals. There's no one. John weeps with disappointment because the hope of God's actions And he's been waiting so long. He's an old man when he's writing this. The hope of God's actions appear to be indefinitely postponed. And one of the elders said to me, this is verse 5 now, we don't know the identity of the elder, whether it was a creature, person, different theories, But one of the elders comes over to John and he said, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. (coughs) (coughs) There's John, right? And I just imagine him. He's on his knees. Usually when I've been bawling my eyes out, oftentimes I find myself on my knees. And he's just crying himself. I mean, he's just bawling his eyes out. And then he feels this tap. And then there's the elder. And he says, John, 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 hey, John, stop crying. John, John, you don't have to cry any longer. John, John, we found someone to open the scroll. John, John, you don't need to cry. John, the lion of the tribe of Judah, 
He has conquered. John, he is here. He can take the scroll. He can open it. John, you don't have to cry. John looks up, right? Kind of blurry. Gets the tears out of the way. And here's what he sees next. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Well, that's strange. There's a lamb, right? (laughs) It's there. It's standing. Uh, It's got seven eyes, and it's got seven horns. And oh, by the way, it it looks like it's been dead, but it's standing there alive. And you say, well, what does that look like? And I I say, I I don't know what that looks like. I'm I'm right here with you. It's certainly a, a strange sight. But as we'll see, this is not any ordinary lamb. The seven horns, common symbols of power, strength, and might within the apocalyptic writings of the book of Revelation. The seven eyes, well, John helps us out. (coughs) The seven eyes, how do we understand that? Oh, you know, they represent the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Oh, got it. What is that, right? John gives us the answer, and then I'm like, great, and it just simply raises another question. Well, I will briefly read uh, two other helpful clues that come from this book in chapter 4, 5, and 1, 4. It gives us uh, helpful information from the throne, and I'm reading from Revelation 4, 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings and peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God and then in 1.4 it says John to the seven churches that are in Asia (coughs) grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne the I think the, the phrase, the seven spirits of God, what we see here is describing the Holy Spirit in all his fullness as the Spirit goes out into all the earth searching for the guilty and the unrepentant sinners to be judged as John testifies two years earlier when he writes the Gospel of John when you look at chapter 16, verse 8. And if that is the case, then we have a very... Trinitarian scene going on in the throne room before John in which the Lamb is standing there encircled by the four living creatures and the 24 elders. And he went, this is the Lamb now, verse 7, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Lamb goes over, takes the scroll. It is a, a stark 
significant contrast worth noting, especially if you read the chapter before, because in, in chapter 4, everyone is bowing down. Everyone is worshiping the first member of the Trinity on the throne. Lamb just walks on over, right? It's like, hey, what's up? Just walks over, takes a scroll. And it seems to be the reason is because the Lamb had no need to, because John views the Lamb as just as much as God as the one who is on the throne. And he comes over and he takes the scroll, the details which will be laid out in chapters 6 through 8. And then, verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp. Play some music. We don't have any harp players. No, I don't think we have any harp players here, but that would be kind of cool. And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I've got a comment on this, and this is not a sermon on prayer, but this is really interesting. I don't, I don't know if you've ever been to a high church service, Roman Catholic, Orthodox. They've got incense in their services. Uh, I suppose maybe it helps with the smell. I mean, among being ritualistic, uh, but... But uh, some people, though, it bothers their allergies. Uh, and anyways, um, if, you've, if you're not familiar with that, uh, think of it uh, a really nice candle. You guys like candles? Or uh, filet mignon. Okay, I like filets. Uh, pull pork barbecue. Yeah, okay, now we're there. I think I think, I think connected, right? So... Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought of your prayers like this before, but do you realize that when you pray, Christians, that your prayers are like these sweet aromas before the king? I don't know if somebody just needs some encouragement. Maybe your prayer life's been struggling. This is like the one thing you need to hear today. But that's what it says. John tells us like our prayers are like to God, like this sweet, pleasant aroma before the king. When you pray, Christians, this is one, one thing to think about when you pray. There are many reasons to think, talk about prayer. If I was doing a sermon on the reasons for prayer, I suppose I could put this verse in here, but this is once again a sermon on why did Jesus come to die. And so they're all there. They're all in the throne room. This party is about to happen. They've got the harps. They've got the music. It's, it's about to explode in this heavenly celebration. The ultimate goal of redemption is about to be seen. Remember the question that I posed 24 minutes ago? Why did Jesus Christ come to die? That's about to be answered right here. About to be answered. So, it says this in verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll... And to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. How cool is that? He's worthy. And the fact that the Lamb is worthy is predicated on the fact that the lamb has been slain, right? 
Remember, John sees the scene. He sees the lamb. It's there. It's like, oh, it looks like it's been killed. Why? Because it has. Standing there alive, looks like it's been dead. What does that look like? Don't know. Only ever happened one time, right? And it's worthy, right? How does it just come over and take the scroll? Because it's worthy. What makes it worthy? The worthiness of the lamb is predicated on the fact that the lamb has been slain. And oh, by the way, he has ransomed people for God. He has ransomed people for God. That word ransomed also, same word, purchased, is significant. Because if I say purchase, say, oh yeah, I made a purchase. I bought something, right? You think uh, Amazon Prime? Okay. You think Amazon Prime, you think MasterCard, you think Visa, you think a swipe, maybe a check, uh, cash, whatever, right? You think purchase. That's what you think. If I say the word purchase, in 2019, that's probably, if the word association, you think MasterCard, right? Amazon Prime, whatever. You do the same word association, a little bit different answer. Uh, the word purchase, the word ransom here, word association, slave market. That's the word association here. That is the first thing that anybody reading this letter would have thought of. They wouldn't have thought Amazon Prime, not around yet. They would have thought slave market. That's around. What happens in a slave market? You buy and sell slaves. That's what happens at a slave market. So the, the worthiness of the lamb is predicated on the fact that it was dead, now it's alive. And it was its blood, the blood of the lamb, which was used as the payment to make the purchase. Right? He doesn't just go to the slave market and say, hey, any slaves in here not want to be slaves anymore? Oh yeah? Cool. All right, don't be slaves anymore. Like, if that was the case, like, we wouldn't be slaves anymore. Like, he doesn't come to say, don't be slaves anymore. Right? He doesn't come, and I use the phrase, he doesn't come just to, to make salvation possible. He's doing something. It's not like, flip the coin, heads, maybe it works, tails, maybe, you know, they don't take my payment, right? Flip the coin, heads, the credit card goes through, tails, it gets declined. That's not what happens here, folks. He ransomed people. The payment was accepted. Doesn't just come and say, I want, I want to be really clear. Hey, slaves, you don't have to be slaves anymore. If that was the case, they wouldn't have been slaves to begin with. That's why understanding this reason why Jesus Christ came to die is so important and meaningful. As John wrote years earlier in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 36, he says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Because at one point or another, we were all slaves. Slaves to sin, slaves to death, slaves to the devil. And oh, how remarkable it must have been for John to witness all of this. And the old man bawling his eyes out, getting to witness 
all of this. How thrilling and exhilarating to realize for John that the people of God, the redeemed people of God, would one day include people from all over the world in a day in which the church, it was very small. It was very isolated. It was struggling. It was dealing with sin issues. John would have certainly been concerned about its future. I said earlier, first two, three chapters of the book, five of the seven churches aren't doing so hot that he writes these letters to. They are facing potentially fatal problems and the knowledge that persecution and sin would not extinguish the spreading flame of Christianity. Oh, how it must have been such (coughs) joy and hope and peace. And some of you need that today. Some of you guys need that. Some of you guys maybe have never had that. I think you did. You haven't. You've never had that joy, that peace, that hope that only Jesus can offer. And you've heard sermons like these a thousand times. A lot of hurt today in the world. A lot of hurt. A lot of persecution happens in this country, right? You want to make a Christian movie that showcases the life of a former planned parenthood employee? That's fine. But we'll call it propaganda on Google. We'll accidentally shut down your social media account. We'll give it a rated R title, even though debatable. Yeah, that's fine. You, you want to sign the, the heartbeat bill in Georgia, Governor? That's fine. We'll pull out. We'll pull out. We'll hurt you economically. No problem. No problem at all. You, uh... You want to be a, a law student at Yale? That's fine. You're going to do a summer internship somewhere at an organization that has traditional views on marriage? That's fine. We're not going to give you any school funding. You got it? You want to be uh, a lawyer in Canada, our neighbors to the north? That's fine. You want to go to a law school, a Christian law school in Canada? True story. That has traditional views or anti-LGBTQ views? That's fine. We just won't recognize you as a lawyer in Canada and good luck getting a job. You want to be a doctor in Canada? That's fine. You want to be a pro-life doctor? That's fine. No one's going to hire you. We'll hurt you. We'll cut you off. Right. It happens today. I'll have 20 more stories to tell you this time next year. This type of persecution and hurt, it happens. You see today, right? Bombs go off in Sri Lanka. Christians, dead. Last two months, Nigeria, armed men go into the town, 
early morning, and they just kill them all. Over 280 Nigerian Christians, they're just dead. See, I never heard about that news story. Yeah, some news stories aren't worth making it, right? They're just dead. You don't have to look very far to see the hurt and the pain in this world that we live in today. And then you realize why John is crying and why this is such good news. He needs good news. This guy needs good news. Oh, to hear, worthy, worthy, worthy is he to take the scroll, to break its seals. And yet, for many of us, the amazing thing is, is when we think about why Jesus came to die, it's like, yeah, whatever, I heard that before, Joe. It's boring. Like, dude, I've been, I've, like, I've been to Easter services before. I, I heard this story before. Get on with it, so I get out of here. You see, the thing is, is these stories should make a difference in our lives. And the amazing thing for so many people, it doesn't. It doesn't. You know, I like to ask the question, because I think this really helps. Did Jesus come to die for us or for himself? I don't know if you ever thought about that. Did Jesus come to die for us or for himself? And I always answer when I hear that, yes. Why? The Bible, that's usually why I give yeses if the Bible says so. I'm like, oh yeah, that's true. You ran some people for God. I'm gonna, you ran some people for God. This is going to be critical and important in just a second. You ran some people for God. You ran some people for God. So that's why I say yes. Yes. Did Jesus come to die for us or for himself? I say yes. Absolutely Yes. We are a ransom people for God. This is nothing new. Peter, he, he came and he said this. He said, you are a chosen race years earlier. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own. I'm going to say it again, a people for his own. One more time for point of emphasis. A people for his own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And yet for many of us, we spend more of our energy Proclaiming maybe social justice movements, our favorite sports team or hobby, or touting certain political parties. Let me, let me put it in perspective, because sometimes it's helpful in explaining why Jesus came to die. It's helpful to say why Jesus did not come to die. He, he didn't come to die to make your life more easy and comfortable, folks. And that might be shocking to hear. He didn't, he didn't come to die to make your life more easy and more comfortable. You know the word blessed, like hashtag blessed, whatever? Uh, that's, that's used 112 times in the New Testament. You know, not one time does it actually refer to material wealth or prosperity. That's true. Okay? Jesus didn't come to die so you don't have to change. He came to die to buy you to purchase you like a slave at the slave market. And for many of you, you're like, oh yeah, that's cool, whatever. Cool story, dude. Jesus didn't come to die so you don't have to change. Lest you forget what Peter says. You're a chosen people. You are. You are. 
your royal priesthood. Once you were a slave to death, and then he bought you, he ransomed you. Why? Why did he do that? So that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And it's so much more than a nice story. And that should make a lick of difference in our lives. He didn't come to die to be the poster boy for your social justice campaign, for your political ideas, for your progressive Democratic Party, for your conservative Republican Party. It didn't. Someone once asked me, do you think Jesus would support Black Lives Matter? I said no, and they were like, oh yes, got him. I was like, hold on a second. The problem is, you need to understand, that's not why Jesus came. That's not why Jesus came. He came to buy you. You were a slave. He said, I'll take him. I'll take her. At great cost to his only son. You want change? It comes through what he did for us. You want true change? It happens when God changes rebel hearts. I'll say it again, because it's so important. If you want true change, it can only happen when God changes rebel hearts. That's it. Not when a political candidate is elected in D.C. that you like. The gospel is change. How does that happen? Jesus. Because Jesus, folks, he changes everything. As John says, worthy are you to take the scroll, to break its seals, and I'm going to ransom, I'm going to buy myself a people from every ethno-linguistic, socio-economic background. Right? Regardless of how much money you make or don't make. Regardless of what language you speak or don't speak. Regardless of what color your skin is. It's buying you. He's ransoming you. And that's pretty amazing news. Pretty amazing. You're a chosen race, Peter says. A royal priesthood. Why? So that we might proclaim his excellencies. And I can't help but wonder and think if we spent more time and more energy and more effort proclaiming his excellencies, telling people about Jesus, because that's where real change comes from, Jesus. If we spent more energy doing that, telling people about the one who called us out of darkness into the marvelous light. I wonder if we spent more energy doing that as we proclaim all the other things we like to proclaim during the week. What might happen? You, you want to see revival happen? Maybe, maybe not. You want to see revival happen? Then do what Peter says to do. So as the team comes today, I want to pray for us.
Jesus, we love you. And Lord, Lord, I know there is people, there are people hurting right now. And we think, Lord, of the injured still from the bombs that went off this morning in Sri Lanka at these churches. And there's, there's people who need good news. They need peace. They need hope. And those things can only come from, from you, Jesus. And Lord, I pray for those of us, Lord, today, we know you, that we, Lord, maybe would have the kick in the pants that we need to not just know these things, but that we would be proclaiming them to a, a hurting and dying world that needs this sort of good news, because it's such good news that you ransomed and bought us. Lord, I pray for rebel hearts listening right now that they might be changed. And Lord, we, we pray, Lord, for you to come again. A lot of hurt, a lot of pain, Lord, and we pray, Lord. We pray for patience to wait for that day, Lord, as we yearn, as we look forward to your second coming. Lord, help us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus, amen.